Hello, everybody. Welcome to this UCL lunch hour lecture on Faces of the Future, Artificial Intelligence Journey Beyond the Realm of Strangeness. My name is Dr. Thomas Chamorro Premuzic, and I'm a professor of business psychology at UCL, and I will be chairing today's lecture. It is my true honor and pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Eva Kumhuva. Eva is Associate Professor in the Department of Experimental Psychology at University College London. Much of her work is concerned with the empirical investigation of the socio-cognitive and affective processes in human perception and behavior. This includes research on facial expressions, especially morphological and dynamic features, and their role in emotion interpretation. More recently, Eva started exploring commonalities and differences in human and machine classification of emotions, with a particular focus on how various elicitation methods, for example, pose, spontaneous, naturalistic, influence recognition accuracy. She has published very widely within the field of psychology and computer science. I am myself a fan of her papers, which always catch even the wider audience's imagination in a topic that is very, very relevant and timely. Before we begin, I wanted to let you know that we will have some time at the end of the lecture for questions, Q&A, and that these can be submitted at any point during Eva's talk by doing so on Slido or to Slido. Enter into your internet browser and entering the event code hashtag AI faces. I will now hand over to Eva for her talk. So Eva, over to you. Thank you, Tomas. Uh, yeah, hello, wonderful people out there. I can't see you, but I hope you're all doing well. So let me share my slides with you. So pretty much in the um, next 40 minutes, I aim to give a brief historical perspective uh, on the Uncanny Valley. And don't worry uh, if, if you don't know what the Uncanny Valley is, I will actually explain the term. And I will present recent collaborative work uh, that I've been doing uh, with Australian colleagues showing why AI faces are now indistinguishable uh, from human faces. And this work has gained a lot of media attention uh, since its publication in November. So we have had so far more than 240 news outlets uh, across the world covering it. And this doesn't actually include social media. Uh, so in this talk, I will use the term or the word AI more broadly, including entities that are computer generated or so-called CGI characters. So you may have wondered in recent times why there's such an emphasis on words such as natural, authentic, pure, original, genuine, whole, particularly in the marketing industry. Well, that's probably because we are in the middle of a technological revolution, uh, a so-called AI revolution, where we are increasingly exposed to virtual characters that can interact with us. And these artificial characters or entities have become part of our social lives. So they help with functional tasks, such as checking into a hotel, answering customer questions, or even carrying luggage. And you can see here a screenshot from TripAdvisor showing the Hana Hotel uh, in Japan, which is the world's first hotel run by robots. 
We can also see an increasing number of artificial characters that act as social influencers. Uh, so here you can see Ludo Magalu. She's one of the most followed virtual influencers on social media uh, with over 25 million followers. She provides product reviews uh, and software tips for big companies. And currently she's also the virtual human uh, with the most visibility in the world, which is quite impressive. And finally, there are artificial characters being developed uh, to provide social support and care. Uh, some of them even take intimate relationships and laugh to a new level. Um, you can see here a screenshot from eBay showing the Gatebox GTBX, uh, which contains uh, this a, a 3D holographic character that lives within a glass enclosure and provides companionship. And it's actually advertised as the perfect wife. Uh, not surprisingly, 4,000 men have already married her using certificates in, issued by the tech company Gatebox just if this is of interest to you. <laughs> so the big question now is why do these artificial entities have a human-like appearance? I mean, in fact, you could also talk to the gate box without this little character inside, like we do with Alexa or Siri. And the answer is very simple. Namely, we know how to communicate with humans, but not with objects. So particularly when it comes to developing um, social emotional bonds and relationships, we need a human element. And there's lots of research showing that the more human-like a character looks, the more it is described uh, personal uh, or human traits, such as being friendly or sociable or extrovert or competent. And we call this in psychology anthropomorphism. So the ascription of human traits to an object so clearly, human appearance increases engagement with technology because we can interact with it as if it would be a human. And as a result, many efforts have focused on making artificial characters increasingly human looking. However, higher realism doesn't always imply acceptance. Also, their similarity to humans is in most cases almost, but not quite perfect. And the Uncanny Valley pretty much captures the idea that seeing artificial entities as human-like may actually pose a problem because it may trigger feelings of uncanniness or eeriness. So Masahiro Mori, a Japanese roboticist, put forth the uncanny valley as a speculation. So it's actually not a true scientific theory. And his hypothesis was based on anecdotal experiences that he had himself with robots or mannequins and prosthetic limbs. And as you probably know yourself, some prosthetic hands, they look really perfect when you look at them. So at first glance, they're indistinguishable from human hands, but as soon as you shake one, of course, you realize that there's a lack of soft tissue and a cold temperature, which gives you this kind of shock. So uh, Mori, Masahiro Mori, pretty much speculated that as artificial characters appear more human-like, 
this seem more familiar. And this is what you see in the curve. So the humanoid robot here, it appears more human-like than the industrial robot. So it, it pretty much is an increase in familiarity until a point is reached here at which subtle imperfections give a sensation of strangeness or weirdness. So the initial positive emotional response quickly becomes repulsion and there's a traumatic decrease in, in acceptance and it falls pretty much into this valley, into this uncanny valley. And Masahiro Mori called this phenomenon Bukimi no Tani, which roughly translates in English to uncanny valley. And you can see here two curves actually. So you can see here a curve for moving uh, images, so for videos, or and you can see here a curve for still images. And obviously imperfections can be in appearance, which particularly apply to still images, but also the imperfections can apply to movement. Uh, so motion could actually, as you can see here, that uh, the, the curve for motion is actually steeper than the, the curve for still images. So motion could deepen the valley because human-like human -like appearance sets up expectations in the observer in terms of how the character should move. And I will come back to this actually uh, in a later slide. So Mori, uh, the Japanese roboticist Mori introduced the term uncanny valley, but the idea that entities uh, which appeared too lifelike, uh, unsettling and frightening already came up in earlier writings. And at the beginning of the 19th century, 1906, Ernst Jentsch only wrote a book on the psychology of the uncanny. And Jentsch discussed um, in relation to the uncanny valley, the fear engendered by automata, which act as if they would be alive, and wax figures, uh, as we see still today in Madame Tussauds, which appear or which look as if they were alive. And he thought that this unease comes from this uncertainty of whether the object is alive or not. A few years later, also Freud, uh, Sigmund Freud wrote a book on the uncanny, and Freud suggested that fear of death was involved. So he referred to the uncanny valley in relation to death and dead bodies, to the return of the dead and to spirits and ghosts. One of the first researchers who tried to, to reproduce Maury's observations was David Hansen. Um, and what David Hansen is, is pretty much he moved images from the humanoid robot Creo, uh, which you can see here on the left side, this white robot here, uh, with images of an android from his own lab, uh, from Hansen Robotics, which you can see here on the right side. And this created pretty much 11 morphed images. And he showed these images one by one uh, to participants uh, and uh, pretty much asked those participants, these human observers, uh, to rate those images in terms of how mechanical or human-like they look, how familiar they look, how eerie and appealing they look. And you can see here a monotonic increase in perceived uh, human likeness. So obviously the the, the Creole robot looks very mechanical, and then you have this exponential increase uh, with the Android uh, robot looking extremely human. And you can also see that the peak of the eeriness rating, so the green curve here, roughly matches the value of the familiarity ratings, the red curve here, 
which could be seen as an indicator of the uncanny valley effect. So the real, uh, the uncanny valley pretty much has real world consequences, particularly in the movie and games industry. I just picked uh, two examples here. There are actually many examples out there, uh, which you can find on the internet. Uh, one interesting example is Final Fantasy, which probably many of you know, um, which came out in 2001. And it, it was really pretty much one of the first real attempts to create animated characters that look like actual people. So you can see here Aki Ross, uh, she had 400,000 polygons, which was a lot in 2001. Um, so she looked quite real, but the animated behaviors and especially the facial expressions and eye movements, they were off by a mile. And the film made a deficit of $50 million. Uh, a more recent example is Sonic the Hedgehog, um, where Paramount Pictures had to change the design of, of the Sonic after receiving complaints about its unnerving human appearance that seemed to freak people out. So obviously the Uncanny Valley costs uh, producers and developers a lot of money, uh, but there's also scientific evidence that the uncanny valley may not only be experienced by humans, but also monkeys. Um, so monkeys also have a complex faith processing system. And in this, and in this study, they, they had three different types of videos or animations. So uh, they had unrealistic synthetic monkeys, which you can see here on the left side, the gray, the gray images. They had realistic synthetic monkeys, which were pretty much animations of a monkey face. And they had real monkey faces. These were videos of, uh, of monkeys doing certain facial expressions. And uh, they pretty much measured, uh, so they showed these videos to the monkeys one by one, and they measured how long the monkeys would look at the videos. We call this, in, in science, we call this visuals, visual preference task. And they found that the monkey visual behavior fell into the uncanny valley because they looked less often. So this is the left graph here. And they also looked, they looked less long, which is the right graph here, at realistic synthetic monkeys, because probably they failed to live up to expectations regarding of how they should look and act. And this pretty much brings me also to the first explanation of the uncanny valley that I would like to discuss with you um, uh, this afternoon. Uh, so the first explanation of the uncanny valley is that the uncanny valley elicits an expectation violation. And here the idea is that the character's appearance determines what behavior is appropriate. So the more human-like pretty much a character looks, the more human-centered expectations are elicited. And these expectations are built from everyday, uh, everyday experiences that we have with real human beings, right? We all roughly know what other behaviors looks like in terms of movement kinematics. So we roughly know what it looks like when someone lifts a hand or when someone raises a, a cup of tea and tries to drink. So we have a rough understanding of what certain uh, movements look like. And if the appearance pretty much is too human-like, it creates unreasonable expectations that ultimately cannot be met. Hence, androids like the person, like the android here in the middle, they produce a negative impression because they violate human expectations. So it's more disturbing to see awkward, awkward movements by the android than the robot 
because the expectations are higher for the Android to do due to its human-like appearance. And on this, on the basis of this explanation, uh, recommendations have been made for robot designers, which I find quite interesting. So they have been pretty much advised that in order to avoid the uncanny valley, the robot should display a certain amount of roboticness to stress the robot's machine capability and avoid false expectations of what it can and what it cannot do. Um, and it should display a certain amount of humanness to make the user feel comfortable in socially engaging the robot. Um, and it should display a certain amount of productness so that the robot is seen as an appliance that the user feels comfortable in using. And I particularly like the robot Taspian. Uh, and also I think the now robot, the now robots, they perfectly fit this recommendation because they are human-like, but not too much. So it's still clear that you're interacting with a machine. Another explanation is what we call in psychology categorization ambiguity. I know this sounds quite complex, but here the idea is that the uncanny value occurs because we are confronted with conflicting information. So this information on the one hand are features. So we see features which are diagnostic of living human beings, but also features that are diagnostic of non-living, non-human object. But the Android doesn't fit into either the living or the non-living category. Realism is continuous, but life is not. So you cannot be half dead or half human. And this difficulty in categorization increases the processing load in our brain. So we generally don't like things that are ambiguous or complex to understand. And the more complex something is to understand, the less we like it. So there's a relationship between <clears throat> sorry, between ease of processing and impression formation. And also like based on cognitive dissonance theory, holding two incompatible ideas simultaneously typically leads to discomfort and unease. So in this study, they pretty much tested this idea of categorization ambiguity by morphing images of humans and human-like objects so, and pretty much they, again, they morphed these images of a stuffed a human and a real human, and they showed one image at a time to participants. And participants had to pretty much categorize whether the image shows a real person or a cartoon character. And they also measured in the study how long it takes participants to make a decision. We call this latency. Uh, and you also um, asked them how like how much they liked the image. So they had to indicate the likability on a scale from minus three, don't like it all, to plus three, to like it really much. And they found that for images in the middle of the morph continuum, the likability ratings are the lowest. So you see here that the, that the U curve is lowest at the bottom. So these images in the middle of the morph continuum, they were the least liked. Whereas categorization, whereas categorization latency was for these images in the middle, the highest. So it took participants the longest to decide of whether the image is real or cartoon. And this could be seen um, as an indicator of the uncanny valley, such that the peak of the categorization difficulty matches the value of the likability ratings. 
Another explanation, and that's very different explanation from what we've heard before, is evolutionary aesthetics. And here the idea is that uncanny characters deviate from norms of physical beauty. So there are um, several characteristics, for example, like useful movements, they tend to be associated with positive emotions. Uh, also expressive behavior typically enhances attractiveness, right? Uh, humans are expressive. Um, that also reflects fertility. Then bilateral sym symmetry, typically, particularly in the face is important. It's an indicator of developmental health and as a resistant to disease and parasites and skin quality and facial bodily proportions, which indicate health of the hormonal and immune system. And all these universal norms of beauty are correlated with physiological qualities such as fitness, fertility, and health. And the idea here is pretty much that uncanny characters fail to meet those evolved standards for facial aesthetics because they have abnormal features. And a, a nice example here uh, is I find the telenoid uh, R1 robot by Ishiguro, which became Hakui ro robot. So this is this robot where you can actually use it in combination with your phone. I remember sitting in a conference in Japan um, 10 years ago with Ishiguro, pretty much saying that this will be the breakthrough. <laughs> um, but yeah, obviously it hasn't completely pushed through because Characters with pale skin, they just might appear anemic, uh, unhealthy, and un unattractive, making people want to avoid it. Interestingly, uh, cosmetically untypical people uh, can also be uncanny. Um, so also, of course, they are far from the dip of the valley in terms of human likeness. But you can see one example, this is Valeria Lukianova, the, the girl on the left side. Um, she's a living Barbie doll. I just picked this because we just have a bit of a Barbie theme at the moment with the, with the movie. Uh, the person in the middle, she's actually her mom, her mother. Uh, so there are also people uh, aim, uh, there are people out there who actually aim to look like artificial characters. And obviously if people aim to look like an artificial character, um, then the big question arises, what is what, what effect does AI have on self-perception, right? I mean, it's clear that people are spending more and more time with artificial entities, hence machine will come to serve as an interactive mirror showing us what we can't yet envision. And these augmented reality mirrors that you can see here are already in use. So I think technology has always been something in which we can recognize ourselves, but also where we measure ourselves against. And as such, it's possible that beauty standards will and probably already change with AI. And yeah, the big question is what are the implications for human self-perception based on the little scientific evidence that's available on, to date on the topic, a visual self-representation, the, the image that people have of their own face seems to be highly fragile and prone to error. And this provides the perfect grounds for copycat, um, uh, for fueling copycat behavior. So in one of my studies, participants were shown Instagram images of women, like you can see here, um, 
who had undergone cosmetic enhancements to their faces like rhinoplasty or Botox or laser skin resurfacing. And we found that, uh, that that desire for cosmetic surgery after watching those Instagram images was increased. Uh, moreover, the more participants used social media in their everyday lives, so the, the more time they spend on Instagram, the more likely they were to consider cosmetic surgery for themselves. And this is pretty much shown in this graph here that social media use positively predicts desire for cosmetic surgery. Uh, body dissatisfaction was also a significant predictor of the desire for cosmetic surgery. So the more we expose ourselves to artificial entities, whether they are computer-generated characters or real human people with cosmetically atypical features, the more we want to imitate and be like them. And as we know in psychology, imitation is a fundamental social process by which we aim to connect and affiliate with others. And most recently in, in one of my unpublished studies that I'm currently writing up, uh, we found that actually watching beautiful social influences is mostly about belonging to the inner social circle, what we call collective social identity, rather than feeling more beautiful or more satisfied with one's own appearance. So it's really about connecting um, with, with these people, connecting with other people, connecting with other entities. And I think it's a big topic that we still, where we still need far more research uh, in how AI will actually change of how we see ourselves. And the last explanation that I want to discuss this afternoon is perceptual mismatch. Uh, so here the idea is that the uncanny valley um, arises due to an inconsistency between artificial and human-like features. So this can be atypical facial features or artificial eyes on, human -like, on a human-like face or just robotic movements of a human-like character. And the eyes are typically the most informative for distinguishing between a lifelike doll and a human face, probably because the eyes convey a lot of information such as attention, uh, emotion, uh, and our motives. In a, in a study by Sayama and Nagayama, they pretty much, again, they had uh, faces, um, artificial faces with enlarged eyes, and also they had human faces. And they found that artificial with artificial faces with enlarged eyes, so the faces that you can see here on the left uh, on the left side, they didn't produce unpleasant uh, impressions here. So they were perceived as, as perfectly fine, but the pleasantness scores decreased for faces with enlarged eyes, the more humor-like the face became. And evaluations were most negative when the mismatch between the realism of the eyes and the face was greater. So here pretty much what you can see here in the red curve, um, so when the artificially enlarged eyes were paired with the most realistic faces, they produced the most unpleasant impression. And the importance of the eyes has long been acknowledged in computer graphics. I just put here, uh, just picked here two examples that I really like uh, from George Chimeney and Chris Jones. Um, yeah, so the importance of properly rendering the eyes, such as um, having them properly rendered in terms of refraction, correct shadowing, uh, and wetness. Um, and we also know that normal faces can be made to look artificial by simply manipulating their eyeballs. So these are actually normal 
normal faces, normal photographs, uh, but you just manipulate the eyeball. Then this undead effect, as we know, has been used for many zombie uh, movies. So you have seen uh, four explanations. I've presented uh, four explanations of, of the uncanny valley. Um, and uh, sorry, um, there are more explanations. Yeah, also like it's important to note that these explanations are actually not mutually exclusive. So they overlap to some extent. To some extent, I think they actually all uh, cover expectation violation, right? Uh, but from all explanations, the perceptual mismatch hypothesis is most supported. However, empirical evidence for the uncanny valley hypothesis is still mixed and inconsistent. Okay, so you've heard four explanations of the uncanny valley. What has happened in the past five years is techno that technology has further propelled forward with software that can now generate uh, fake faces using AI. Uh, so for example, this person doesn't exist is a website that generates a lifelike image each time the page is refreshed. And you can actually specify the age range, the ethnicity and the gender. Um, my heritage is another example. It uses deep fake technology to animate the faces in photographs of dead relatives. Uh, there are many more examples out there. I'm sure you know yourself as uh, more examples of computer-generated AI-driven contents that look incredibly realistic. And in a 2022 paper, uh, Nightingale and Farid uh, pretty much found that AI-synthesized faces are indistinguishable from real faces, and they also perceived as more trustworthy. So what they did in their study is pretty much they had generative adversarial networks or uh, so-called GANs. Um, they use those to generate AI images. And for each AI image, they selected a real face that was matched in terms of gender, age, race, and overall appearance. And these uh, real faces were selected from a database um, that was used in the style gun to learning stage. So this was a database uh, used to train style gun, and that consists of 70,000 real faces. Of course, they couldn't show the 70,000 faces to the participants, but participants, they were shown 128 uh, face images, and these images could either be real or synthetic, and participants had to uh, make a decision or had to classify them as either real or synthetic. And what they found is that accuracy rate in distinguishing between real and synthetic faces was about 48%, uh, so about chance rate. It was a little bit higher in a second experiment where participants were given trial by trial feedback. So pretty much people were unable to distinguish AI from human faces. And they suggested that white faces were, or they found that white faces were generally least accurately classified. That is, for white faces, real and AI images were the most difficult to distinguish. And you also speculated that this might be because white faces are overrepresented in the training set, uh, but they didn't directly test this hypothesis. So what we did then is we took a random selection of 1,046 faces from this 70,000 training set um, to manually verify the demographics in terms of gender and race. And although uh, there is some diversity in these images, you can see that actually the majority of them, the two thirds of them are white. 
And when we separated out white um, uh, white faces from non-white faces in, in Nightingale and for its original data, we find that for non-white faces, AI images, so the purple bar here, they were judged as human at around chance level. And similarly, non-white human faces, so these are the orange, this is the orange body, were also judged as human at around chance level. So there was also no difference between the two types of images. But for white faces, we found that AI images, they were judged as human significantly more often than the real human images. And they were also often more often judged as human more often than chance. So to ensure that this finding is robust, uh, we ran another study with a new set of participants and we found exactly the same result. And we call this shift to see AI faces as more human than actual human faces AI hyperrealism. So people are not only unable to distinguish uh, AI faces from human faces, but they also judge white AI faces as more human than pictures of actual humans. And you can see here four faces that were AI misidentified as human most often, and all of them, as you can see, are white. Whereas the real people's faces that were misidentified as AI most often, they were all faces of color. So I'm not a computer scientist, but what I, I know is that AI algorithms such as generative adversarial networks, they are typically black boxes. So we cannot know exactly what's happening inside them to produce these AI outputs. Uh, in this case, in our case, we were fortunate enough that the creators of StyleGun 2 had made transparent what they trained the AI on. And given that the algorithm was trained on primarily white faces, it became particularly good at producing high quality images. Hence the output was hyper-realistic white faces, right? This makes completely sense. But you may now wonder what made the white AI faces appear so hyper-real. So what are the attributes that make a face human-looking? So besides letting our participants decide whether a face was AI or human, we also asked them what information they had used to make this judgment. It was pretty much a free response, so they could uh, just write anything at the end, what they, what they used, what indicators they used. And we then coded this information to come up with traits that were uh, commonly mentioned. And this also included traits that according to psychological theory and research should differ. Uh, so yeah, so we were pretty much at what information participants had used and we coded this information uh, into different groups. And you can see this here in the wheel. So we had 21 main themes with 20 sub themes. So for example, people mentioned, oh, the eyes looked weird or the skin looked probably too perfect. Um, and the thickness of a subsection indicates pretty much the frequency with, it, with which a particular trait was mentioned. And in a second study, we used these attributes and had another set of participants rate the AI and human faces on these attributes. And what we found is that the two types of faces that are human and AI faces, do, they do differ physically. So in fact, AI faces are more proportional, more average, more familiar, symmetrical, and attractive, alive in the eyes. They have higher image quality. They're less memorable and expressive. 
And you can see here, for example, that the AI phase is more proportional than the human phase. But the problem is that people expect human phases to be more proportional. So therefore, what you're doing is pretty much misinterpreting this characteristic as a sign of humanness, which then leads them to incorrectly perceive AI phases as more human. And you can see here attributes that pretty much contribute to people's judgment of whether the face is AI or human. And we found that pretty much you can see here the red attributes, and these are used in the wrong direction to judge whether a face is AI or human. So human faces are actually incorrectly believed to be more proportional, more familiar, and less memorable because these are attributes that actually apply to, to AI faces. And the green attributes here at the bottom, these are attributes that contribute to accurate, to correct AI human judgment. So human faces are correctly believed to be less symmetrical, less symmetrical, less attractive, and less congruent in lighting. And that probably reminds me, at least very similar, that reminds me of light detection research, where people often believe certain cues to be indicative of whether a person is lying or not. For example, uh, there's this belief that gaze aversion is indicative of deception, that liars don't look you straight into your eyes, but actually that cue is not related to lying at all. And the same here with the distinction between AI and human faces. Another big question, so, so this then leads obviously to the AI hyperrealism effect. So another big question is, are actually people aware that they are being fooled by AI? Because if people find a discrimination task difficult, they perhaps they know that they are doing a, a terrible job at it. So to test this idea, we not only ask them to make a distinction between whether they think the face is AI or human, but also how confident they are in their judgment. Um, so pretty much we also gave them a confidence ratings. And we can see here for the classification of white faces a negative relationship between uh, accuracy and confidence. So the more errors people made, the less confident they were. But for the classification of white AI faces, we see a positive relationship, meaning that the more errors people made, the more confident they were. As such, people who perform the worst in distinguishing AI and human faces, they're actually the most confident. And in the final step, we wanted to ensure that this overconfidence is not due to a response bias. Uh, so people could essentially get all AI faces wrong, right? By simply saying that every single face they see is human um, and performance sensitivity pretty much reflects this performance rate without the response bias. So here on the y-axis, you see the performance sensitivity, which reflects the performance rates without response bias. And meta-sensitivity here on the x-axis indicates how much insight people have into their performance. So for example, you could have somebody who is a poor performer, but who has good insight. Um, so this would be scoring low on the y-axis and high on the, on the x-axis. So this would be probably lying around here. And this would be somebody who realizes that they are just not good at telling AI faces apart from real human faces. But in our sample, we found that the majority of our participants fell into the, the poor performance and poor insight quadrant. So they have poor sensitivity to the difference between AI and human faces, and they also have poor insight. So in short, most people are making a lot of errors, and they are not aware that they're actually being fooled by AI. 
And this leads me to my last slide. What can you actually do to protect? What can I do? What can you do to protect yourself? Um, and I think it's it's important that we all become digital detectives. So even though uh, you are now familiar with the attributes that distinguish AI from human faces, there's no guarantee that this is going to remain the case for very long, uh, given the speed of AI. And it certainly doesn't work in every single instance. So it's important that we all maintain a healthy level of skepticism when interacting online, for example, by varying the identity before we go ahead and treat it as real. So in this particular case, our science was possible because the makers of StyleGun 2 had made available the training set, but that's really not happening anymore for a lot of technology for which we see uh, that they are rapidly losing transparency. So to conclude, I think it's important to hold AI creators to account requiring to make public um, and transparent how their AI is trained. Also what they are doing to make sure their AI is not biased and perpetuating issues that already exist within our society and that they are not potentially escalating them. Thank you very much for your attention and sorry for the connection issues. Hey Eva, thank you very much. And I'm glad we got you back. And I think it's the real you, even though I couldn't tell if it was a deep fake right now. So let's uh, take you at face value. Um, so we have a question already in the Slido and actually they're rolling in. So let me start with the first one, which says last year, Levi, I, I, I'm not sure if it's Levi's genes or somebody else, but it says, I assume so, tested AI generated models to increase diversity. What will tech's responsibility be in ensuring AI doesn't strengthen existing gaps, or I guess also reinforces existing stereotypes, right? Any thoughts on this? Yeah, it's pretty much what, has, what I've been touching up in the last slide that I think we need to say the training set. And obviously, uh, they're all trained on training, and but the training set, um, yeah, they're often not made publicly or sometimes also they yeah they are trained on on data where we where even probably the uh, the the people who train them on because data need to be annotated right i mean you need to, uh, to uh, uh, you need to annotate them in terms of what is shown in the image um and you know of people um who are doing who are data annotators right these are what the big companies tech companies are doing so they hire hire externally people very cheaply often to 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 describe what's shown in the image and I think it's just very, very important uh, to yeah to screen for certain uh, biases or for certain issues um, in the annotation in the first place, because then they can be picked up before the the AI is actually trained on. But this obviously is a lot of work, um, mm -hmm. and that can probably also only be achieved by by companies who have a lot of money or who have a lot of funding available to. To, to control for this, but the annotation of the material, of the training material is crucial uh, in this case. Mm -hmm. Thank you. On to the next one. We have a few more and uh, I'm sure by this stage, you're not surprised that a lot of the questions are on existing technologies and the applicability of some of the implications of some of your findings. So the next question says, why do you think there is such a continued effort in creating human looking robots if the reaction from humans is discomfort. 
Yeah, so this is a very interesting question. And what I haven't, um, I, I try to pretty much cover a lot because I talked about robots and uh, artificial digital uh, characters on the screen. And there's still a big uh, discrepancy in research and also in the effects that they achieve. So it's much easier to achieve high realism uh, as, as we have seen in static still images of, of virtual characters that, that appear on the screen. It's much still much more difficult to achieve realistically looking robots um, that can interact because obviously you have an embodiment of, of something. So, um, so, so yeah, there, there are different emphasis in these two types of lines. And I think with respect to the, um, um, to the virtual, there are lots of, there are already lots of good users, well, like virtual therapists out there, virtual mm -hmm. counseling uh, that may actually help a lot of people just as a, as a kind of connection to, to create connections. About um, what about robots? I'm still, we are still not there, but there's also a lot of work currently happening to make them appealing and, and, and yeah and more sociable that people connect with them but people often humans as humans we often think that we actually need a lot of uh human perfectness um but actually i think it's often that we actually just need a kind of we, yeah we need intelligence what we currently have with chat gpt is which is super intelligent um and that's often already the building grounds for um yeah for for, for creating relationships and as we've seen with chat uh, with the gate gate box uh, that uh, men only start to marry uh, virtual characters, uh, it it suggests that actually humans don't need that much in terms yeah. of humanness, or at least and, the standards are going downwards. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean divorce rates are very high, so you might argue that uh, if you're marrying a kind of virtual agent or a chatbot or robot, I remember seeing a demo actually. It was in Japan, which obviously. Like a lot of other countries who, which invest a lot in these technologies have high loneliness rates and people are, you know, often deprived of human empathy and human to human interaction where you could literally customize your robotic spouse and even define the frequency of the arguments that you want to have with them. So they can be think exactly like you and then you ever argue, but it will maybe be a little bit boring. If you argue all the time, you know, it's just like about relationships. So you can customize that. Hey, we have a couple of more questions and then we're going to wrap as we're approaching time. Next question says, as the use of AI faces increases, do you think humans will adapt to the AI faces, which might lead to the alleviation of the uncanny valley? Very good question. Yeah, I think there's definitely there could be a habituation effect, right? Um, but obviously, technology always aims becomes always more and more sophisticated. So we have seen now with with uh, virtual faces, they become indistinguishable for static for static images. I'm sure they will also become indistinguishable very soon in terms of videos that we will have uh, moving images. Um, as we see with deep fakes nowadays already that look very, very um, human realistic. So yeah, technology would definitely go uh, further, further, further. Uh, but yeah, maybe, I don't know, with robots, I think the imperfection can actually, is not often a kind of uh, backlash. And um, yeah, some many, many producers actually of, uh, of virtual characters, they sometimes they go in the opposite direction to avoid the uncanny valley. So they, as I said, they, they, they try to stress the productness and the 
and the roboticness um, that still allows participants or people to connect with it, like we do with pets or, you know, like with stuffed animals. We also love them, right? Our children love them. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different additional factors uh, that are typically discussed with my students in class that actually come from the person like, uh, yes, loneliness is one of them, uh, but there are actually many other, sometimes also personality characters, sometimes developmental characters, sometimes cultural factors that actually uh, influence the extent to which we anthropomorphize, to ex the extent to which we attribute human traits to, a, to an object. Mm, very interesting. And the last question ever from our audience is, do you think the use of AI participants, oh, sorry, actually, we have a couple more. First, so if you can be brief and we finish in time. First, uh, somebody in the audience says, Meta will add AI generated labels to images created with OpenAI, Midjourney, et cetera. What other practical solutions from companies are needed to protect people? In other words, do you see labeling things as important to make people aware of you know, the fact that we have AI generated objects or content? Yeah, I think it's the first step that um, ideally the images or videos should have a label that they have been manipulated or edited to, to an extent. I'm just not sure to what extent this will be feasible, uh, given also the, the level of technology that we have reached. I mean, if you, if people go to the cinema, they're actually just seeing all everything is uh, AI is animated, computer animated nowadays, even scenes where you think, oh, this looks actually completely perfectly human. So yeah, it's a question of feasibility, but in the end, uh, there are all the um, regulations that need to be put in place, and there are actually lots of um, organizations working working on this at the moment. So fortunately, we have a lot of people becoming aware of this of this issue and of this problem. Thank you. And the final question, do you think the use of AI participants, for example, in user experience research, could mean us losing empathy? or, you know, downgrading our empathetic skills or abilities? Yeah, it's a question for the future. I'm not sure. Uh, I think it, uh, artificial entities and the more we interact with them, we definitely change the way we interact with humans. Um, uh, just for the Gatebox GTPX, which is advertised as the perfect wife. I mean, it actually behaves in a very um submissive and very uh, old-fashioned way of saying what can i do for you my master i mean a wife probably doesn't talk to to her husband like this so sometimes we create like standards that may not be ex they may not actually exist in real life so uh, uh, yeah it's just interesting to think of potentially future issues we have um yeah how we might communicate uh with with humans in the future and yeah we'll see what's coming in the next in the next years excellent thank you so much eva i look forward to following your publications and continuing your to you know uh digest all the great work that you and the team are churning out and with that we are going to wrap thank you everybody for joining us and have a good rest of your day Thank you very much.